If you open with me the book of 1 John, if you're not familiar with your Bibles or you're new to what it means to be a Christian and Bible reading, 1 John is going to be towards the back, very back of your Bible. You're going to see the book of Revelation back up a little bit, and you're going to catch the book of 1 John. First John chapter two, we're going to look at a couple verses here, but I want to read one kind of as introduction to get us going. First John chapter two, look with me at verse 15. It's a famous verse, well-known verse. It's a concept that's often repeated by Christians. We talk about it. Churches hit on it. Um, I strive to live it. Uh, Most of you that I interact with do as well. Verse 15, it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Okay, don't love the world or anything in it. And then catch what it says. This is scary stuff. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Powerful verse. Do not love the world. It's a concept that we see in the New Testament repeated often. It's this concept that those of us who follow Jesus Christ, those of us who claim to be Christ followers, we pull and we separate ourselves from the world, but yet we look out at this world and what do we realize about this world? This world is really jacked up. It's broken. It's evil. This world doesn't run on the principles that we would say God has designed life to run on. I look out at the times it can be a little scary. And my heart is, is that we, myself, those of us who profess to be Christians, pull outside of that world and don't live as a part of that world. You know, we can see the difference of the world. I think of Hollywood. I think of the last couple movies I've watched. And I look at the, the heart and the lifestyle that's exhibited in those movies. And I watch people living together outside of marriage. I see a lot of drug use. I see violence. I see life designed not in the way that I would say scripture tells us to. I look at that and I think, man, I look at the songs that I hear. Right now, one of the top songs in the charts, a song by Pitbull. Uh, I think it's called, um, some of you may know this, You Give, Give Me Everything. It's a song where the whole song, Pitbull's lyrics are pretty scary. But this particular one, if you turn on any pop radio station this week and listen for less than half an hour, you're probably going to hear this song. And it's talking about... Basically, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow, which is a true, cool statement. So he says, so let's go live it up tonight and have lots of sex, is what he says. Let's make love all night. And I look at songs like that, and I listen to the pervasive, invasive world that infiltrates and just pushes back. I look at our young people, and it can get discouraging. I see it not only in Hollywood, I see it not only in songs, but turn on the news. Within the last month, we've heard news of New York State making... Homosexual unions now legal. I think of San Francisco, which is now pushing through to try and keep parents from being able to circumcise their children because the child is not old enough to make a decision that causes them pain and suffering. And I think about this stuff and I watch the news. I see it in the movies. I hear it in the songs. And I, you know, it gets discouraging. I see how it infiltrates. But then I look beyond that. And I say, you know what? I look in the sacred places of life. And it's in the church. And my heart breaks there too, not just Bethany, but just the churches in general, a self-absorption of consumerism, of serve me, focus on me. And if the music that was sung doesn't meet my style, then I'm upset. And it's this me consumed, serve Adam Nagel. Now, as I look at that, and I can be discouraged, and I look at a verse like 1 John, it says, do not love the world. And I look all around at this pervasive world, how it infiltrates. But here's where it gets really scary. When I stop and reflect... And I look at my own heart. So I think Christians sometimes we look out and we see this big bad world that we're not to love and we're to separate ourselves from. But then when we stop and really get honest and we look at our own hearts, I see that dark, scary, jacked up world living right in here. I thought of this past week. I could give you a ton of examples where I see it myself, but probably one that I think illustrated it best this week is I had a conver- I was in conversation with someone this past week. And in the midst of that conversation... They shared with me something that someone else said about me. Now, it didn't hit me right away. It didn't really strike me as anything. I went home, though, later on that day. And as I went to bed, I realized I was going to bed with a lot of anger on my heart, bitterness. How do I know? (laughs) Because I was having imaginary conversations with the other individual. A scary place to be. 
I think I'm sane. I think I'm normal. But as I looked at my heart the next morning when I got up and I sat down in my quiet time, I started thinking about it. I thought, wow, you really went someplace dark quick because of what could just be gossip. You haven't even gone to this other person and verified. But I felt betrayed. I felt hurt. I thought, why didn't this person come to me? Why did I have to hear it secondhand? But it's scary, isn't it? When I look at the world all around us and I find I'm not alone in this. We all battle something, something dark that captures our heart on a regular basis that tends to pull us under when we're fighting to get our heads above water and live. And I look at this verse then in first John chapter two, and it takes on great significance. Do not love the world. Isn't that what I was doing? I was loving the world as I was going to bed. I was feeding on it. Hatred and bitterness is not a part of God's economy. So I'm loving the world. And it says, if anyone loves the world, this is where it scares me. The love of the father is not in him. So as I sat there in my quiet time the next morning, I thought about some of the verses that Chris covered last week, where it talks about love. It talks about anger, blinding and keeping us from being able to see where we're headed. I thought this is serious stuff. But as I thought about the reality, I think it's the reality all of us experience is none of us want to be there. I have met very few people who have said to me, you know what, Adam? I am really stoked. I am just stoked that I'm controlled by my lust. I am so happy about it. I've met very few people who said to me, my goodness, I am so glad and I'm so happy that I cannot control alcohol. That it's destroying my family. I've met very few people who who say, you know what? I am really excited that my marriage is falling apart because of my emotional problems. So I find the reality is none of us want to be here, right? We all hate the results of what this stuff does, what the world, what loving the world does to our lives. But yet we go there. So this morning, as we look at this passage, this passage starts out and it's going to look and it's going to probe. And there's, there's two things we want to do this morning. We want to look at the battle. I want us to understand the battle because John tells us that the, the, the battle that wages within us really can be boiled down to three simple things. There's nothing new under the sun. None of us face, I don't face anything that you don't face. You don't face things that we all kind of face, these three same things. Now, they manifest themselves and they look different in your life than they may in my life. They may look different in our lives today than they did in John's world years ago. But the reality is, I want us to understand this battle. Because I think in understanding it, I think we can start to see how it pervades, how it invades. And then I think it also begins to give us tools to battling it, to fighting back. So that's the first thing, understand. And the second thing we want to do is we want to then talk about the victory that can be had. See, sin does not discriminate. You ever thought about that? Young and old alike fall to sin. Ugly, dark, evil, bad world. We all fall to it. Rich or poor, doesn't matter your ethnic background. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your <laughs> education. We all, sin does not discriminate. Here's the cool thing though, victory doesn't either. We all can have victory. And that's what we're going to end with and really kind of go with. So look with me, let's kind of unpack this. The first word, let's look at verse 15. The first concept I think it's pretty important for us to understand is this concept where it says, do not love the world. Now, this word world, you may have, if you're new to church and you may hear Christians at times referring to the world, what is the world? I think it's important to understand the word in the Greek language is the word cosmos. Basically, the the concept here that John is pulling out is it's the system that is moving against God. Our system, our world system, everything, the way it thinks, it processes, all that it's built on is moving against and it's hostile to God. Do not love it. The way that our world operates and functions, its philosophies, it infiltrates every part of our world here is is the concept, is the cosmos. And it says, do not love it. You can't love it. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the world is clearly opposed to the way God operates. Now, verse 16, it's going to break down into three areas. Let me read them, and then we're going to go through the three areas. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man... The lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does from the father, 
excuse me, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So coming back to verse 16, there are three things that are unpacked here. The first one is the cravings of sinful man, is how the NIV words it. Others of your translations may have the lust of the flesh. Now, the lust of the flesh is the first thing that John hits on, and I want to just take time to understand what this is and really illustrate it. First thing, you'll see the word flesh. Flesh in the New Testament, when you see the word flesh pop up, it usually means one of two things, or sometimes those things marry themselves in the New Testament. It simply means the humanness and the sinfulness of our humanness. Now, why it's important to differentiate this is, um, I just want to make this real clear. When God created mankind, we were created as humans. We had a human nature. Okay, now sin did not enter the world yet. Sin enters the world later. We're going to look at that passage a little bit. But sin enters the world through Adam and Eve. They make some poor choices. So human nature and sin nature are not one in the same thing. There's going to come a day when human nature is void of sin nature. But when you see the word flesh in the New Testament, typically and most often, and here in this, in this uh, reference, it's referring to the human nature and the sin nature coming together, and it is fully infiltrated. That my human body is completely taken over with sin, the flesh. Anytime you see the word flesh pop up in the New Testament, usually that's the reference that it's making. The second thing, then, is the lust. And the NIV renders it, I think, very well. It says the cravings. This word is not negative or positive. Here's the trick. The things that we crave are not usually right or wrong. What we crave is a lot of times good. Food. I crave food. Is food bad? No. But I'll tell you what, I lust after it at times. Especially some of the things I see in some of the buffets around here and I see in some of the freezer cases at our stores. Namely, Turkey Hill Philadelphia Vanilla Ice Cream. I lust after it. That's not bad stuff. Same as it says, John is not equating. It it says it's what we do with this lust and how what we, here's the key, how we replace our, our, our satisfaction in Jesus, our satisfaction in God with this thing. And that's what really hard of it is. So lust is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's what we do with it and how we run after it. Now, a couple examples. I just kind of, Chris and I actually sat down this week. I asked for his help to get another brain in on it. Um, here's some of the things that we thought about when lust of the flesh is typically used. Here's some of the common everyday things that we may see in our world. First one I mentioned is food. It's a physical, again, lust of the flesh. It's my body craving something. So it's food. Another one is drink. It's, it's, again, an internal physical craving that just comes from within me that says, I have to have this to satisfy this body. Sex is another big one. I think food, drink, and sex nail probably three of our biggest. And, again, with sex, I'm not just talking about pornography. I'm not just talking about looking out at someone who's not your spouse. I am talking about married sex. I've talked, interacted with people that married sex is a real problem for them. They crave it way too much. And it's not healthy. It's not creating a healthy relationship between husband and wife. So sex and just the, this internal, if, if I am driven and controlled by this desire to, again, it's coming from inside. Um, sleep. Sleep is a lust of the flesh. Something that my body generates in being lazy, skipping work. Here's a big one. This is <laughs> the avoidance of pain. I mean, think of our American culture. You see that lust of the flesh everywhere. We hate pain. Whether it's physical suffering, whether it's depression, stress, anxiety, or some kind of emotional scars, we hate pain, and we will go to all ends to medicate that pain. I think of drugs, whether they're illegal drugs or whether they're prescription drugs or whatever the case may be, we, we medicate. I think of another big one of lust of the flesh is recreation. Americans, we love play. We love the party. We love our vacations. Again, nothing wrong with this stuff, but again, it's this, it's this internal craving. It's going to war to control my soul and tell me, Adam, you need this to satisfy you and to make you happy. So recreation, play, entertainment. And here's one for me. I just slipped on to the end of the list, air conditioning. I've got word recently that our air conditioner is on the fritz. We have central air that came with the house and we bought it. And I'm not sitting there going, no. No, no, I hate being hot. That's why I wear sandals. I do everything I can to stay cool. Um, it's not fun being hot. So anyway, so it's, again, it's my fleshly desire kind of craving up. Now, at the ultimate end, here's where the lust of the flesh takes us. If you allow yourself to be controlled by this, we ultimately turn into animals. 
You know one of the things that differentiates me between a dog? Take the issue of sex. When and how does a dog have sex? It's instinct, isn't it? It's this craving that comes in and they just go do it. So if we allow ourselves to be controlled by this, we ultimately become an animal. And I'll tell you what, God did not design you and design me far greater and far more beautifully and more intricate than an animal. But we become slaves to this stuff. It's gifts from God that really go bad on us. I, want, um, I actually want to play a video. This kind of illustrates, I think, captures this kind of really put an exclamation point behind the lust of the flesh. This is a video. This was aired on CBS News. It's a test that's done. They're going to explain it, but it's a marshmallow test, it's called, where they have four-year-old kids come in and they give them a choice. And it's something that's going to drive them straight. So I don't want to share a lot else. Watch the video and um, you can smile. It's, it's cute. Okay. It's called the marshmallow test. One go. We're trying to set up situations in which young children make a choice between two of something that you prefer later or one of something that you prefer a little less now. If you had to choose, would you like to have one marshmallow or would you like to have two marshmallows? The whole point of the experiment is to set up an intense conflict between the two. Now here's how we play this game. I'm going to leave the room while I'm gone. If you can stay here and wait for me to come back without eating the marshmallows, then you get two marshmallows. But if you don't want to wait, you can make me come back right away the bell. by pressing the bell. But then you get one marshmallow, not two marshmallows. I won't ring the bell. You won't ring the bell? Okay. The conflict for the child is very heavy, is that about half will go one way and half will go the other. Oh, you made me come back. It's like a little window into willpower. Or dilemmas that everybody faces. What we found is a very simple and direct way of measuring a competence that seems to make an important life difference. The longer they were able to wait at age four, the better the ratings of their ability to control themselves and to pursue their academic and other goals. Please come back. The kids who are able to delay gratification are increasingly learning ways of managing frustration, ways of managing distress. In middle life, there's less drug use higher educational level attained, much less likely to have lowered self-esteem, uh, to engage in bullying behavior with other people. The correlations are clearly statistically significant, but that in no way means that a youngster who at age four didn't wait a long time is in any way doomed. Now, I don't know if you caught some of what he was saying, but there's a fine correlation between someone who can wait at age four and then being healthier in life later. I think that's the same thing John's saying here. We, we cannot allow ourselves to be controlled. And you see it so well there. I love the little boy who licks his finger and he touches it just to kind of get a taste to tempt himself. I mean, it is burning within them. They want that marshmallow so bad. But how important it is not to be controlled by that. I think of things like TV. I think of times when I come home in the evening and just turn the TV on. I always I challenge us. Why do we do that? Is it to truly do it with purpose and entertainment to say, you know what? I've had a long week and I'm purposely intentionally shutting down now to do this. Or sometimes I find, and a lot of times I just stop and ask, why am I really turning this on? Sometimes it's just to emotionally check out from a long, hard day that I really don't want to face. And I start to think about why do I eat what I eat? Why do I, and a lot of times I find that we are, I am speaking for myself, so controlled at times by the lust of my flesh and the desires that burn within me. And it's a scary place to be. I think um, one of the things we're going to come back to towards the end of this 
when you think about those little kids and you think about the lust of the flesh, you know, things I've realized I have never found myself sinning out of duty. I don't know, maybe you relate to that. Have you ever found yourself sinning because you said, I have to sin? I've never done it. And it's interesting. It's just this, this thing that captures us, pulls us in. It says, this is going to satisfy you. And I think that's part of the answer to the battle. This, this duty, this desire versus des, um, uh, desire. I think Matthew chapter 5, maybe you want to look at it this week. Matthew 5, 28 to 29. This kind of transitions into lust of the eyes as well. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus knows that we have this strong propensity to live. We want to live. We love life. And so he shows us how serious it is to be controlled by the lust of the flesh and now the lust of the eyes. He says, no. This is serious business. It reminds me of the movie. Have any of you seen the movie 127? It captures the, the real-life story of Aaron Ralston who finds himself in a cliff in the Arizona desert, down in a canyon, I mean. And he ends up down in this ravine, and, he's, and he, as he was climbing, a rock falls and lands on his right arm and pins him in that ravine. And all he has now is the backpack that's on his shoulders and the clothes that are on his body to survive. He makes it 127 hours, and no one comes to rescue him. Do you know what he does? He takes, I mean, it was a gruesome thing for me to watch on screen, but I think it captures it so well. He takes his knife and just, his doll knife, because he was trying to scratch rock with it to try and carve the thing away, and he rams it into his arm and slowly works his limb free from his body. I think that's the picture that Jesus captures. This is serious stuff. This is life and death. And he, Jesus, I think, says, I know you want to live, and I'm going to appeal to that desire to live. And he says, so take this stuff seriously. Lust of the eyes, I think, is the next one here that I think kind of leads in from that passage in Matthew. Lust of the eyes is real simple. It's basically the desire to possess what I see with my eyes. It's covetousness. It's being discontent. It's looking out and saying, I have to have that. I think the verse, Proverbs, captures a verse, powerful verse. I'm going to actually have it up on the screen. I think that captures the lust of the eyes very well. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20, it says this. Death and destruction are never satisfied. Death is inevitable, and it eats us all up. And look what else it says. And neither are the eyes of man. We are consumed. We want. We, we see and we want. That's the lust of the eyes. So we have the lust of the flesh, and we have the lust of the eyes. And with this one, you have um, basically it's idolatry at the, at the very core of it. If, I, if you think about the Ten Commandments... The Ten Commandments, in essence, begin and end with the same thing. If you look at Exodus, not now, but if you look at me this week, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 says, you shall, you shall not have any other gods before me, God says. It ends with, you shall not covet, verse 17. I think what, what God initiates is he understands is this coveting is, is looking out and saying, I'm not satisfied with what God has given me. I want that. And it becomes idolatry and we chase after it. So it's the lust of the eyes. Now, some of the things Chris and I sat with this past week, and we came up with a list with this one too. Um, houses. I went on vacation. You know, one of the things I do every time I go to the beach on vacation, I've done it since I've been 19. I always pick up the real estate magazines. Do you know why? I so badly want to own a house at the beach. I always have. Now, it's not wrong to own a house at the beach, but if it consumes my life and it drives me, and I replace my satisfaction with what I have and who I am with having that house at the beach... It's not a good place to be. So houses, decorating, designing, landscaping, and a whole, whole lot with that. Cars, trucks, motorcycles, boats, RVs, ATVs. Clothes, fashion, jewelry, accessories. Accessories are one of my favorite, very honestly. Belts, shoes, coats. I know, some of you are... <laughs> people. We, we covet people, don't we? Don't we look out and see people we want? Maybe it's a husband or a wife, or I want more kids, or I wish I had their kids instead of my kids, or whatever the case may be, but we covet people. Maybe another lover versus a lover that I have. Money, we covet money. We look out and we see, and we have to have money to then have it. Technology, oh, we love our technologies. Our little smartphones, our tablets, our computers, our TVs, our gaming devices. I mean, this is, this is all-consuming. I think the other one, too, I just put is stuff. Whether it's um, the newest and the latest and the greatest... Or it's that little as seen on TV, you know, the sham wows of the world. 
You got to have it, right? You see it on TV. I was watching the Tour de France yesterday, and they had this really cool infomercial on for a spice rack that pulls out so you can stack all those crazy McCormick things that fall all over the place. It pulls out and then folds this way, and it stacks double-decker, and then you can push it back in. I thought, that is cool. The ad scene, again, it's, it's this lust that we see something. Wow, my life's not complete until I have that cool spice rack. That would make my life so much easier when I go at all the, you know, all the cooking that I do in my house. That would make my life so much easier to have that cool spice rack. So again, it's the things we see. Probably the biggest one that Chris and I talked about is just the newest and the latest. I mean, how many of us, after we have our car for two years, are really happy with our car? There are a few in here that are, because you're mechanics and you know how to really, you put love and care into that thing. But most of us, after two to three years, we're thinking, my goodness, this thing is ancient. I've got 30,000 miles on this, so this thing's got to go. And we begin to look out. We want the newest and the latest and the greatest. Our phones. I had my, I've had my phone for less than a year. It's got to go. I mean, I just cannot stand a thing. I look at all that's out there now and think, man, technology has advanced so much. But it's the lust of the eyes. I think of the verse that captures this best is Matthew chapter 6. It's actually going to be up on the screen, verses 22 to 24. Again, this is Jesus, very close to when he talked about cutting off your hand or gouging out your eyes. He says, the eye, now look at what this says. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, you're what? Your whole body is full of light. So what I take in here is so crucial. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. This is just like we started out. You can't love both God and the world. It's one or the other. Either you hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now look at what he says. He draws it and hits home, and then he goes into the the don't worry about what you have and, and what you don't have. You cannot serve both God and money, the things that we see. What I take into my eyes, I think of 1 Timothy 6, and we can look at it this week, verse 7, where Paul says this, the writer of Timothy. He says to a young pastor, Timothy, he says, you know what? Money at the end of life does not go with you. I think of that. When I was at the funeral for my grandmother, you know what I thought about once again? Every time I'm at a funeral, I think about this. At our time of our greatest need, money lets us down. At our time when we need security the most, hope the most, just that, that, that wrapping of an arms of love and care is at the time of our death. And the money is not there. We come into the world naked, we leave naked. Nothing. So again, so we have lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Everything that you battle in some ways is going to fall under those two. And then the final one, and this is the biggie. In my opinion, I think this one hits them all. <laughs> I think this one might, could arguably be the, the mother of all the others. And this one controls, I think, all the others. But it's basically the pride of life. The pride of life, by its definition, is basically self-display, self-glory. I seek to put me out there as number one. It's all about Adam. I don't care about anyone else around me as long as I am lifted up and exalted. This arguably motivates, and we're going to look at that in a minute, all, the other two. But basically it's saying God created us in his image, and I love the statement, and we return the favor. We neglect God and replace him with us. It's all about me. I am in control. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my soul, and it all runs through me. I think a verse, if you really want to study this one, is is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at it maybe this week, 8 verses 11 to 17. There God speaks to the nation of Israel, and he says to them, you know what? You're in this promised land, and you think that the things that you have, you earned. You think you're so great. You think you're so cool because you got these magnificent homes, this great business, and and life is good for you. But you need to understand that the product of your life is grace. You have nothing that you have earned and worked for. I have given it to you. And pride of life begins to replace that thinking with the thinking that says, I am a total result of my choices and my hard work. Now, (laughs) scriptures are clear. We reap what we sow, so my choices are important. They're not negated. But ultimately, my life is a result of God's grace and God's favor on me. Not Adam really working hard, doing a great job. I think of the word self-sufficiency, and I came across this quote as I was studying this this week. Self-sufficiency, if you really think about it, it's kind of the heart of pride of life. Basically says, when I'm self-sufficient, I should be... Uh, free, it should free the proud person from the need to be made much of by others. 
So when I'm self-sufficient, this writer said it should basically free me from the need to hear accolades and pats on the back from everyone else. He goes on to say that's what sufficient means. Being self-sufficient means I can live without you, right? So he goes on to talk about this. He says, but evidently there is a void in this so-called self-sufficiency. The self was never designed to satisfy itself or rely upon itself. It never can be sufficient. We are but images of God, not the real thing. We are shadows and echoes. So there will always be an emptiness in the soul that struggles to be satisfied with the resources of self. I find the most self-sufficient people want to hear the praises from others. It's evident. It proves the reality that they are not living unto themselves. I think of some of the examples Chris and I pulled together again this week, and here's some of the ones we came to with pride of life. I think this one is pervasive. I think of body image, whether it be dieting, workout, and how we look. We're huge on that. How I look, how I present myself, what you see outside. Knowledge is a big one. Schooling, I'm smarter than you are kind of attitude. Or I want to know a lot so everyone looks at me and says, wow, isn't he a smart guy? Fame. Basically, it's being someone who is worth knowing. I think that's the heart of the pride of life. I'm not okay with you not knowing who I am and why I should be known. Popularity, I think, flows out of that. Or basically, basically popularity is how many friends do I have on my Facebook friends list? Do I have more friends than you have? Peer pressure rolls into this one. I think that's why peer pressure is so huge. It's basically the pride of life because I will do anything I need to do to have friends because when I'm in the in group, I'm cool and I'm okay. I think job performance, job title, or just basically power and control flows under this one. My family, I think if we take pride in that, my family, how many kids I have, how, how my wife is, how my kids behave, what my kids have accomplished, etc. Here's a big one. I think moral and a good behavior. Sometimes we pride ourselves. Look at what I can do. Look at how good I am. Religion, I think, becomes lands in this one. Athletics, music, and arts are basically any of my skills and talents. Again, all good things, all gifts from God, but they oftentimes poison us to say, hey, look at me up here in the stage. Look at what I can do. Volunteer work. Nationality. There's a lot of pride of life in the nationality, my ethnicity, my health, how healthy I am. I think of the pride of life, I think a lot of times when we think of this, we think of the strong. But it's also pride of life flows with the weak as well. I think of the strong, well, those who are come from a good place in life. Life has always worked out for them. Life has always been good. Typically, when they have the pride of life grip their heart, it comes off as boasting. And they really sound very self-sufficient. The weak, those who life has not gone well for. They've been on the short end of stick often in life, whether it has been physically, emotionally, or abuse of some kind. Typically what you see then when pride of life grips their heart, it comes off as self-pity. The exact same thing though. It's almost like, sounds like, oh, look at what I have sacrificed. Look at what I have endured. So again, this one spares no prisoners. It captures us all. So you look at these, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything you deal with in some capacity falls in under these. Now turn with me back to Genesis, beginning in your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. I want you to see something very interesting. I think we need to understand how pervasive this battle really is. It's always been with us. Genesis chapter 3, we have the beginning of creation. We have Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman created. And in Genesis chapter 3, something happens. Something very bad happens. It leaves us in this mess of this thing called the world that we talked about. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now here's one of the things we're going to come back to as we end this message. If you want to really win the battle with these three, we must believe and trust in God's word and his goodness. Eve messes this up really bad. She begins to doubt, and the first thing the serpent does is he questions the nature of God. Did God really say this? And Eve then, as she repeats what God said, she messes. If you look at what her response is, God never said to them, you can't touch it. He simply said, don't eat it. So she attacks on this extra command. Now, catch verse 4. 
The serpent says, you will not surely die. He's attacking the goodness of, and the nature and the character of God. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Here it is, the pride of life, isn't it? Your eyes are going to be open. I think it's the captain of the other three. You're going to be like God. Now, look at this next verse. Verse 6. The, look at the three pop out here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. There it was. Good for food. What's that? Lust of the flesh. She wants to eat. There's this internal craving. It says, wow, that would really taste good. Then what's it say? She saw it and it was what? Pleasing to the eye. Now look at what it says. And also desirable for what? Gaining wisdom, pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The three tools that Satan used right at the outset to bring Adam and Eve down to their knees. To take them out. And we know the story as it continues. It's a mess. And we live it today. Now, Satan doesn't give up. Look at, flip with me to Luke chapter 4. If you've been doing the quiet time reading as a church, the see God um, reading plan, you've been, you were in this passage, I think it was a week or two ago, uh, Luke chapter four. Okay, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, Luke is going to be now towards the back, about three quarters of the way through. You can see Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke chapter four. Now remember, so Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he tempts them. And he uses the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now Jesus is here and Satan is going to approach Jesus. And look at the, the, this. Here it comes the tactics again. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Jesus, it says in v- chapter 4, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Where for 40 days, now catch this detail. This is, the, this is a doctor writing this. So he's, I think, into the bodily details of what's going on with Jesus. He says in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted, verse 2, by the devil. Look at what it says. He ate nothing during those days. Now, I love this little statement that Luke puts in. It's like, no kidding. At the end of them, he was hungry. No kidding. <laughs> you go 40 days without food, you're hungry. So here he is hungry. He's, he's in a, a physically weakened state because of this. The devil said to him, this is at the end of his time. Keep in mind, he was tempted through the whole time, those verses say, but now here we are at the very end, and Satan's going to come at him one final time and try and dethrone him. Because he knows if he knocks Jesus down, he has won the battle. So he's going after it, and he's, so he's going after the best of the best. And he uses the three that we saw in 1 John. Here it comes. The devil said to him, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become what? What is it? Lust of the what? The flesh. It's an internal craving, your need for food. Jesus, see the food? Have the food. Now, there's so much more to that too, but but just on the surface, lust of the flesh. Verse 4, Jesus said, now look at what he says. He quotes scripture. It is written, man does not live on bread alone. So he comes at it. You know what? (laughs) I don't need to be controlled by my fleshly appetite. I live by so much more than that. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Here's the lust of the eyes. He takes him up and what's it say? He showed him. Look out, see with your eyes. It can all be yours. Lust of the eyes. Satan's trying to take him up there and he's saying, look at this magnificent world and these kingdoms. I will set you up as the ruler of that. All you've got to do is follow me. Verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 9, then the the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. To guard you carefully. Verse 11, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. There it is, pride of life. If you're really the son of God, come on, Jesus, show it to me. Prove it to me. If you're really the son of God, they're going to save you. Let me see the miracles. Let me see the excitement. Put on a show for me. So we have lust of the flesh with the bread. Lust of the eyes when he says, look at all the kingdoms you can have. And then lust, the pride of life when he says, hey, here it is. Jump down. Show me your stuff. Verse 12, Jesus answered, 
it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now catch this, these next two verses. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him. He left him. I think when we learn to resist, as it says in James, he flees. I think why a lot of us struggle to win the battle against this internal stuff that comes at us is we do not resist. We give in to the lust of the flesh. We consume the pride of life. We go after what we see. And so it says he left him. Satan's given up. He's not going to stay around. Now, then look at verse 14. Another cool thing. Jesus returned to Galilee in the what? Power of the spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. Cool stuff. He comes back and almost stronger and ready to now start his earthly ministry. He's proven that he is the son of God. So I come back to how do we beat this? Notice one of the things Jesus does. Eve begins to question the goodness of God and and misses God's word. What does Jesus use? Jesus uses the word of God. I think one of the things that's crucial is we learn to fight fire with fire, that we basically learn to throw against the promises of this world. We throw at them the promises of God. Remember I said earlier, no one sins out of duty. No one. Now you might know someone and I'd be cool to hear the story, but I think very few people sin out of duty. But you know how most Christians try to live their Christian life? I've found my personal experience out of duty, out of gut it out, dig deep, work hard, just do it. And I'm going to survive. And we don't survive. Because we're pulled in out of desire and delight. Because it looks, it's, it's this promise of I am going to make you happy. I'm going to satisfy you. So what we need to do to fight fire with fire is we turn back and say, you know what? The promises of God are going to satisfy me. God satisfies me. And God, this, this word is filled with desire and delight and energy and excitement. But what happens is it comes along and we see this world and we think, well, you know what? <laughs> yeah, I know Jesus and God say this, but look at that. That's cool. And we slip. So I think we need to learn to turn this thing back on its head and fight fire with fire with the promises of God and hold on with desire and delight and quit living out of duty. Look at verses 12 to 14. I skipped them for a reason. I want to come back to them now. Verses 12 to 14, I think a lot of people, when they read this, it's, what is John saying here? I don't get this. It it kind of follows after Chris's section last night about, hey, live like Jesus did. And he gives you the commandment to love one another and don't hate. And then all of a sudden we have this. It leads into do not love the world. It says this, verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Then he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And then launches right into do not love the world. It's interesting to me. (laughs) I believe this, this section is saying two things. I think it's first it's saying no matter where you at on your journey, No matter where you're at in your journey with God, you can fall. You have what it takes to fall. You also have what it takes to succeed. Now, here's the thing I think it's crucial. John talks about three areas of life. He talks to children. He talks to young men and the young. And he talks to the mature, the fathers. And he basically says, here, I'm going to give. And it's interesting how he keys in on certain attributes of each of those three. I think if I'm going to win the battle of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's important that I understand where I'm at in this list. Where are you? In your faith, in your walk with God, are you a child? Or maybe you're a step even before that. Maybe you've never entered the family of God through Jesus. But where are you at? And here's the cool thing. I think that John hits this and he says, there's victory to be had by all. Yes, we can all fall. We're all susceptible. But here's where it comes. The children. Look at what he keys in on the children. Does he say your sins are forgiven to any of the others? He doesn't. Do you know why? Someone who's brand new at this thing called the Christian life and following God with all their heart. In theory, who sins more? Someone who's brand new or someone who's been walking with Jesus passionately for 30 years. 
Who's going to struggle more with their sins and temptations and addictions and pornography and drugs and alcohol and, and all the other lust of the flesh and pride of life? Well, who's going to, what's going to control? It's the young, isn't it? If you're brand new at this thing. And I think what John is saying, hey, keep in mind, those of you who are young, don't lose heart. Your sins are forgiven. Key in on that. That's all you need to keep your heart and your mind on right now. So if you are, if you are new in your relationship with Jesus and you're young and you're trying to figure this out, do not lose sight that your sins are forgiven. And the second thing is, is you know the Father. Because of Jesus, you've been brought into relationship with God the Father. Key in on that and hold on to that. Now, the second thing then, notice the sins are forgiven are not captured with the young. Look at what it says with the young. They overcome, they're strong, and the word of God lives in them. In fact, it says they overcome a couple times. One of the things I learned at the school I went to in upstate New York, it was a school that believed in evangelizing youth all around the world. And one of the things that I loved with that school is they used young people to their fullest capacity. You know what I found about young people? When I worked in youth ministry, I found this. You know what pains my heart to see is young people sit in church like this. Do you know why? Young people turn the world upside down when their hearts are captured for Jesus Christ. Young people move mountains that I am realizing as I get older, I cannot move. Young people rush in where fools fear to tread. And it's like the young, he's saying, key in on your passion and your energy and your strength and the fact that you're out there fighting the fight and go at it. It's fun. It's exciting. And the word of God begins to see how it progresses. Your sins are forgiven. You know God. Hey, that's cool. Now, as you get deeper, you're going to begin to key in on the word of God in this battle. Now, the mature, this is cool. Now, those top can somewhat be true for the mature, but look what it says about the mature. What does it say? They know him who is from the beginning. Do you know what I love doing? I love, I don't consider myself mature yet. I think I've got a ways to go, but I love sitting down with someone who has walked with Jesus for a lot of years, someone who's, someone who's really soaked it up, someone who's lived it with every fiber of their being. You know what I've noticed? I love to just sit with them and listen to them. We have some here in Bethany. And you know what they ever just key in on? It's this intimate knowledge. This, I've lived with God. I've walked with him. He's talked to me in the morning. I talk to him at night. He is here. It's this intimate, he's been there from the beginning. He created the world. He's all powerful and he's controlled my life. And here I am facing the end of my life now. And I look back with steady, calm assurance. Mature. So I think as we look at this passage, John hits this before he jumps into do not love the world. I think he does it with purpose. Understand where you're at on the journey. Be honest. I find so many people who are children who act like they're mature. And all they're doing is destroying their life. I think if I'm a child, I should be honest. You know, I'm a kid. I'm cool. I'm a kid in my faith. I'm still young and I'm still growing. So you know what? Go out and focus on my sins are forgiven. I'm going to blow it tomorrow. I don't have the fortitude and strength yet built up. I'm going to blow it, so I need to know my sins are forgiven. As I end, I want to look at the verse, John chapter 10. It's a verse I passionately quote often. (laughs) You've heard it from me many a times. John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what Satan does. And he uses the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I am here, and I'm going to destroy. I'm going to wreck your life. It says that then in, in verse 17, didn't it? He who lives for these things, their life is, is death and destruction. Jesus says, though, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus has come to give us life. And Jesus has come to say, I fully satisfy you. I satisfy you. Your every need, your every craving, your every desire, I satisfy it. So don't follow me out of duty. Don't gut it out. Chase me with passion and with energy. Come at me because what I promise you is life. Hold on to that truth because you give in to the other. It's death and destruction. So as I end, where are you at in the battle? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Which one of those has really captured your heart? Is pulling you under. I guess the next question would be where are you at in the journey? Are you a child? Are you a young Somewhere kind of an adolescent trying to figure this thing out? Are you mature? Or maybe you're saying, I'm not even sure I'm, in the, I'm even on that list. And then finally, as you think through that, what are you doing to really battle and gut it out? 
Because when I resist and I continue to resist through the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, because Jesus is here and he's alive and he's active through the Holy Spirit, when I continue to resist, I end up stronger on the back end and the devil leaves me alone. But it's so crucial as I go to prayer that we do it not out of duty. Now, this theme's going to come out in 1 John 5 in a few weeks, but not out of duty, but out of passion and delight and exuberance and energy. And I'm saying I'm in love with Jesus Christ because he satisfies my every desire. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, you've designed this world to run in a beautiful way. You've designed it, uh, you've created us in your image to relate to you, to connect with you, to walk with you, to have an intimate relationship where, where we can say friend and hear that from you. God, that's a cool thing. And I pray that um, we would know that because, yes, the world's been messed up. Sin has entered and it is jacked up to the fullest and it is a mess and this world is completely hostile to who you are. And it's so easy for us to see as we look out We see it in the movies and in the music and in the news and and in our friends and in all the world around us. But God, the thing that's scary is we see it in us. But God, you've come, you've lived in this earth through the person of Jesus. You've died, you've rose again. You leave us with the Holy Spirit. And you promise us life. God, my desire as a pastor for every person in this room is they are experiencing life, but I know far too well I was there just a day or two this week. We find death. We find heartache. We find pain. We find addiction and lust that consume us. God, may may we be a church that stands up and fights well and resists the devil. But God, may we do it not out of duty, not out of legalism, not out of dead religion, but may we do it out of a desire and a passion to know you fully and completely, looking to you and holding on to your promises Your promises are extravagant in scripture. They're life-giving. We hold on to it and trust you and run after you with energy and emotion and delight. Not out of duty. God, anyone that's here this morning that may never, can't say that they're a child of yours. God, would you, maybe they would reach out to the person sitting around them, the person they came with, and just talk to them about that. God, give us the strength to fight this week. Give us the strength to be honest with ourselves and what it is that we're struggling with and give us the strength to say, this is where I'm at in the journey. And God, help us to run after you with delights. In your son's name we pray, amen.